High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. As you may know, Every episode in this season was inspired by a request from you, our listeners, made on our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Today's episode request came to us by a listener whose forum username is Chris Pohl. This person writes, Greta Garbo, John Gilbert. There's a lot of conflicting stories about the end of their relationship and whether or not Louis B. Mayer thereafter vowed to destroy Gilbert's career, or whatever. I'd love your take on it. Thanks for the request. Greta Garbo is still, today, held up as one of the unmatchable stars of Hollywood's golden era, even though most of her films are rarely revived. And the thing that most people seem to associate with her is this idea that she was known for the catchphrase, I want to be alone. The history of which is complicated, and we'll get to that later in the episode. But if you were watching Hollywood in the mid to late 1920s, you were getting mixed messages about Garbo. 
You were told she was this enigmatic lone wolf on screen and off. And you were also asked to believe that she was in true love with her frequent co-star, John Gilbert, a king of the silent era whose transition to sound film was as rocky as anyone's. Gilbert's story was a key reference for the recent Best Picture winner, The Artist, although it's important to note that the real Gilbert wasn't stymied by a foreign accent and didn't get to enjoy a dancing comeback. As our listener suggests, there is a pervasive idea that Gilbert's career was done in not by sound alone, but because of a grudge held against him by Louis B. Mayer. The tragedy of John Gilbert's last years was summed up by director William Dieterle, speaking about the actor while he was on his downswing. Dieterle said, There Gilbert sits in his palazzo on top of the mountain. He still looks wonderful. He's only 35 years old. All the talent's still there. The wit, the intellect. But it's like a spell has been cast. Those last bad years at MGM destroyed something in the center of him. We all used to drink. My God, how we drank. But Jack couldn't stop. He drank till he threw up blood, till he was totally unconscious. You'd look at this handsome guy with all the parts still together. It was unbelievable what happened to him. Join us, won't you, for the unbelievable MGM story of John Gilbert and Greta Garbo. John Gilbert, almost always called Jack by everyone and everybody except for on-screen titles, was a nobody from nowhere who briefly became the greatest Hollywood sex symbol of his day. Born to an itinerant actress, Gilbert never knew his real father, although apparently his mother used to occasionally wake him up in the middle of the night to introduce him to the new daddy she had picked up and taken back to their rooming house. She eventually married a guy named Walter Gilbert, and before they shipped little Jack off to military school, the kid got a new last name, which stuck. By the time Gilbert was in his late teens, his mother had died. His stepfather, a theater director, knew a guy who was working at Thomas Ince's movie studio. And somewhat miraculously, given Jack's upbringing, strings were pulled to get the teenager a job at the studio. He began working his way up from extra to feature player. By 1919, when Gilbert was 22, he was appearing opposite actresses like Mary Pickford and Colleen Moore. Early on, producers seemed to have understood that Gilbert was really great at wearing surprisingly ornate clothes and generally looking pretty. He gave the viewer as much or even more on an eye candy level as the actresses he was cast against. And the characters those actresses played were usually overcome by his charms. But what was interesting about Gilbert wasn't necessarily his impact on the women in the frame or in the audience. It was the way he performed the impact of women on him. By 1924, when Gilbert was cast in the second lead in the Norma Shearer, Lon Chaney circus movie, He Who Gets Slapped, Gilbert had begun to establish his persona as a star. Not so much a lover, as a man overcome with love. 
Off screen, Gilbert was incorrigible. His contemporaries described him as hysterical, prone to mood swings. Father was the way he was, said Gilbert's daughter, Leatrice. He smoked too much and drank too much and took Irving Thalberg to brothels where a nice Jewish boy shouldn't go. Where Thalberg indulged Gilbert, the actor made Louis B. Mayer seethe. Gilbert was uneducated and of low-class stock, but he gave off the persona of being an aristocrat, which Mayer hated, probably because it showed up his own attempts to turn himself into a classy guy. Every encounter between the star and the studio mogul seemed to make the latter angry. But soon enough, Mayer's personal feelings didn't matter, because Gilbert afforded the studio ample opportunities to make money. In 1925, Gilbert anchored two of MGM's biggest hits. He was Mae Murray's romantic interest in Eric von Stroheim's The Merry Widow, epitomizing the John Gilbert who lived to love a woman. Then there was King Vidor's World War I epic, The Big Parade, which established MGM as a major player among studios. The Big Parade was supposed to cost $205,000. It actually cost $382,000, It grossed $6 million, and it made John Gilbert a complete star, not just a romantic idol, although primarily a romantic idol, but also an empathetic everyman. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. The other big MGM hit of 1925 was Ben-Hur, While in Europe for the agonized and ultimately mostly aborted first shoot of that film, Louis B. Mayer traveled from Rome to Berlin, where he screened a number of new European movies, with his interpreter translating the intertitles live in the screening room. A girl in a German film called The Atonement of Gosta Berling caught Mayer's eye. 
or rather, she caught him with her eyes. Mayer believed that there was an ineffable thing that you could detect in the eyes of a performer that would tell you whether or not they had what it took to be a star. The young girl in the German movie, this Greta Gustafsson, she had the thing in the eyes like no one Mayer had ever seen. Mayer arranged to have the actress meet him at his hotel, and by that night, she had signed her first MGM contract for $400 a week. Greta Garbo was, to quote silent film actress Eleanor Boardman, fascinating, extremely selfish, beautiful, strange. But 20-year-old Greta Gustafsson, on her arrival in the U.S. in 1925, was mostly perceived as just strange. At first, it looked like Mayer had made an impulsive mistake. Other MGM execs thought Greta was awkward. She spoke no English at all in the beginning, and socially, she kept to herself. No one knew what to do with her. Because Scandinavians were associated with athleticism at this point, ridiculous publicity photos were taken of the newly renamed Greta Garbo posing with the USC track team. Eventually, Irving Thalberg decided to put Greta through an intensive makeover. Her hair was defrizzed, her waistline defatted, her boyish personal wardrobe was junked in favor of stylish new threads, paid for out of her weekly salary. It's been said that Thalberg did all of this as a kind of last-ditch effort to salvage Mayer's investment. It would either scare her into running away from her contract, or it would reveal the star quality that Mayer had seen but had since remained hidden. She was then cast in a film called Torrent, as a Spanish peasant who goes to Paris and comes back an elaborately costumed singer. And as soon as the rushes started to come in, that thing that Mayer had seen was now visible to everyone else. Torrent would establish Greta Garbo as an ingenue, the Screenland discovery of 1927, but it didn't make Greta any happier. Feeling insecure and depressed, she started openly longing for her homeland of Sweden, but now MGM was determined to keep her around. They decided to make the most of her apparent melancholy, her penchant for solitude and distaste for the Hollywood social scene, and started crafting a persona for Garbo as an implacable beauty with an untouchable heart. Perhaps it's because the roles they supposedly played with each other off-screen seemed to so closely align with the roles they played on-screen that some have long suspected that John Gilbert and Greta Garbo's romance was an invention. Louise Brooks, who claimed to have had a fling with Garbo, said the icy Swedes affair with the tempestuous, alcoholic Gilbert had been invented by MGM's publicity department to cover up Garbo's bisexuality. Others have said that Garbo never had much interest in sex with anyone. Certainly, there are enough conflicting stories about the Gilbert-Garbo love affair that all of them should be taken with a grain of salt. But the conflicting legends have been printed again and again for a reason. The contradictions complete the picture of Garbo as the most unknowable of superstars. In 1926, director Clarence Brown wanted to cast Garbo opposite Gilbert in a romantic tragedy called Flesh and the Devil. Garbo wanted to go back to Sweden, but she was under contract, so she had no say in the matter. It's been reported that Greta and Jack fell in love at first sight, 
that visible sparks flew between them the first time they locked eyes. It's a fact that this is what happened between the characters they played in their first scene together on film in Flesh and the Devil. Certainly the performers had a kind of chemistry together that comes along once in a lifetime, which is captured in the movie. The two could turn scenes in which virtually nothing is happening, shots in which they look at each other or look away from each other or meaningfully walk past one another or almost touch each other, into something resembling an erotic dream. Many people believe that Gilbert, in a sense, taught Garbo how to be Garbo on the set of this film by giving her direction in their scenes together that superseded the actual director's direction. I'm not exactly sure how that would work in practice, but I don't think you can discount the power that Gilbert had when he was in his element. By now, he was the best man in Hollywood at playing a man in love, and Garbo soon became the best woman in Hollywood at playing an object of desire. If you believe that Gilbert and Garbo had a real romance, then you have to believe that they became swept up in one another very quickly. Flesh and the Devil was shot in about three weeks, and by the end of the shoot, the couple were apparently speaking seriously of marriage. According to director Clarence Brown, Gilbert started proposing almost immediately. To outside observers like Brown, it seemed like the two were in love, but Gilbert was always more in love than Garbo. Again, not unlike the roles they played on screen. One biographer has Garbo crediting Gilbert with her Hollywood success, in that if they hadn't met and found in one another a kindred spirit, on screen for sure, if not also off screen, then she would have surely abandoned her American career and gone back to Sweden. And yet, as one version of the story goes, Garbo stuck around to become a star because Gilbert didn't give her what she wanted. As that version goes, Garbo wanted to quit movies, and she told Gilbert that she would marry him and give up her career. Gilbert was like, yes, please, marry me, but don't give up your career. Garbo apparently thought this meant that Gilbert wasn't serious about her, that he just wanted an acting partner. But few accounts, other than Garbo's, question Gilbert's seriousness. King Vidor was set to marry actress Eleanor Boardman, and Gilbert arranged that it be a double wedding, that the Boardman-Vidor nuptials be followed by the union of Garbo and Gilbert. But the day of the wedding, Garbo didn't show up. Gilbert was incredibly upset. At one point, he was in the bathroom, weeping. According to Boardman, Louis B. Mayer walked in, saw his romantic idol whimpering, and said, Sleep with her. Don't marry her. According to Boardman, Gilbert then punched Mayer in the face. Mayer, on the floor, his eyeglasses broken in pieces, allegedly then said, I will destroy you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
1927, Garbo had drifted out of Gilbert's grasp off-screen, but they were still a potent on-screen match, and both knew it. When Garbo was cast in an adaptation of Anna Karenina, she bristled at MGM's suggestions for leading men until finally Gilbert was cast opposite her. The film ended up being titled simply Love, with Garbo insisting that only Gilbert direct her in their love scenes. That same year, Gilbert appeared in a film called Man, Woman, and Sin, opposite Gene Eagles, who became Gilbert's off-screen love, too. Eagles had been a Broadway superstar and great beauty, but she was also an alcoholic and a heroin addict, and two years after her teaming with Gilbert, she would be dead, and Gilbert would be married to actress and New York intellectual Ina Clare. In fact, it's been said that Gilbert came back from his honeymoon with Claire to find that, thanks to the release of his first talkie, his time in the sun as Hollywood's greatest lover was suddenly over. The truth is, as I'm sure you could guess, somewhat more complicated. In 1928, Gilbert was still one of MGM's most valuable stars. United Artists tried to poach him. Knowing Gilbert's MGM contract was expiring the following spring, in late 1928, Joe Skank of United Artists offered a six-year deal in the model of the one enjoyed by Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks. Gilbert would finance his own films, or more likely find the financing, probably via Skank's independent production outfit Art Cinema, at the rate of two per year, and in return, Gilbert could pocket up to 70% of the North American gross. So if he were to have another hit along the lines of the big parade, this could have meant incredibly big money. But it would also have meant much more responsibility for Gilbert himself. Ultimately, Gilbert decided to stay where he was, and MGM rewarded his decision by agreeing to extend his contract and raise his per-film salary to $250,000, which was a lot. United Artists would have allowed Gilbert to choose his own projects, whereas at MGM, he would remain chattel. But he was also getting paid more than pretty much any actor ever, and MGM agreed to a contract stipulation which wouldn't allow them to break the contract under any circumstance. This is shocking in and of itself, given that by 1928, MGM should have been able to foresee some hugely mitigating circumstances. Both Garbo and Gilbert made cautious transitions to sound. Garbo's last silent film, The Kiss, wasn't released until late 1929. But of course, everyone at MGM took a while to make the transition. Garbo was one of the studio's only stars conspicuously missing from the Thousand Stars omnibus film, The Hollywood Review of 1929, in which Gilbert performed excerpts from Romeo and Juliet opposite Norma Shearer. By the time that film was released, Gilbert had already shot his first starring role in a talkie in a drama called Redemption. But MGM weren't happy with the results, so they rushed the romance his glorious night into production, probably on the grounds that a film with Gilbert in loverly mode couldn't lose. His glorious night did have Gilbert playing a character that was familiar to him, but there was something about the way the dialogue, written in the language of intertitles, sounded coming out of his mouth. People at MGM would later claim that the problem was one of technology, that Gilbert's so-called voice problem could have been fixed with mixing equipment that came along later. 
critics of MGM claim that such technology must have existed because they believe that, in fact, Mayer ordered that all of the bass notes be removed from Gilbert's voice. But it's not that Gilbert's voice itself was bad. Take a listen to a clip from His Glorious Night. I thought you'd never come here. But you know that I've been there for two hours, waiting, waiting, waiting. I couldn't come before. But you could have sent some word. No, darling, dearest one, what have I done but wait, wait, ever since I've known you? You can't, you won't. You wouldn't be so cruel, knowing how much I want you. This movie is not a comedy. It was intended as a romance, as straight-faced as any that Gilbert made with Garbo. But audiences of the day laughed instead of swooned, because in this context, Gilbert's old ladies' man methods seemed laughable. The problem doesn't seem to be with the tone or register of Gilbert's voice. The problem is the way he says words like cruel. Cruel. The problem is that his line readings of impossible dialogue are unconvincing. This is not that surprising. Gilbert was doing a new kind of acting, and you would have thought that he would have been coached. Every other silent film star went to a coach in their effort to make the transition. A cottage industry had cropped up. One of Howard Hughes's uncles, Felix Hughes, became one of the top vocal and diction coaches in town. Because what people had started to realize was that just as the camera seemed to be able to see things that the naked eye couldn't see that made some people photogenic and some otherwise very attractive people simply not the microphone could capture and enhance elements of a voice that weren't a problem in real life. Throughout the course of his career, nobody in Hollywood who knew John Gilbert thought that he had a particularly effeminate or unmanly voice. But that's what started appearing in the press. King Vitor would later imply that Mayer and or other MGM executives simply made this up and fed it to the magazines a suggestion which Louise Brooks would make as well. The truth is, Gilbert's difficulties maintaining his stardom into the 1930s has less to do with the quality of his voice and more to do with what Gilbert represented. It's hard for us to understand what it was like to watch silent movies before there was such a thing as talkies, but suffice it to say, it was different. In the silent era, movie stars were beautiful ciphers, onto which viewers projected depth and meaning. This made individual stars very powerful because each individual viewer completed their performances by fantasizing what they wanted to believe to fill in the gaps of what they didn't know. And John Gilbert, thanks in part to his look and performances and the work of the cinematographers and directors of his films, but also thanks in part to the desires of movie viewers, was the biggest romantic star of the late silent era. That meant that the things that people were fantasizing about him were personal, and even specific to each individual's idea of what they wanted a seducer to be. So maybe there was no way the real-life talking John Gilbert could compete with millions of people's fantasies, developed over the course of a decade, of what it might sound like if he were to whisper sweet nothings to them. And then there was the fact that the transition from silent films to talkies was not just technological, it was also cultural. Even if there had been a way to adapt Gilbert's performance style and voice to something that fit more comfortably within talking pictures, by 1930, the life-or-death approach to romance that he represented seemed old-fashioned, and given the ongoing depression, 
maybe even offensive in its decadence. Look at the romantic movies that were hits in the early 1930s. Sound film opened the door for the witty, double-entendre-laden comedies of Ernst Lubitsch, as well as the Jeanette MacDonald comic operettas of Ernst Lubitsch, and a number of pre-code films which considered women as romantic subjects as well as objects, movies starring actresses like Norma Shearer, Kay Francis, Joan Crawford, Jean Harlow, and, well, Greta Garbo. Leading men of the silent era, Gilbert included, had a continental air, which fit with the need for those movies to translate internationally. But in the sound era, cinema went from being basically international to being highly regional, and the Gilbert type of leading man would be easily overwhelmed by the strong women soon dominating the screen. Soon enough, continental became code for a little bit gay. Think about the Italian fashion designer characters in the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies, who are always dating Ginger when she meets Fred, who is clearly a real man, comparatively. The 1930s romantic male ideal became something like Clark Gable, a rippling hunk of man who perfected the I-don't-give-a-damn vibe years before Gone with the Wind made him articulate it. And there was something else that was attractive about Gable, at least to MGM— Gilbert was making $250,000 a picture. Clark Gable could be had for $7,500 a week. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. A lot of people believe Louis B. Mayer personally destroyed Gilbert's career. Others believe Mayer didn't have to do anything to bring Gilbert down a notch because Gilbert's movies very quickly stopped making money and started losing it. Because he was getting paid so much for each picture, his movies really couldn't be made for less than $500,000, which meant they had to gross in the neighborhood of $800,000 in order to turn a profit. After His Glorious Night, no John Gilbert film grossed as much as $700,000. Gilbert knew the score. He felt humiliated. He had always driven around town with the top of his convertible down, but now he started leaving the car closed. Because when it was open, when he'd stop at intersections, he was certain everyone on the sidewalk was laughing at him. Just because he was paranoid, that didn't mean that Louis B. Mayer wasn't plotting against him. Mayer confided in his friend, the lady lawyer Fanny Holtzman, that he wanted to fire Gilbert because his movies were losing so much money. Fanny Holtzman told Mayer that she thought that would be a bad idea. You don't spit in the soup you have to eat. She said, 
You still own thousands of feet of Gilbert footage usable in many parts of the world. You can keep sending out stills, preserve the illusion in those places. Why throw away the assets in your vaults? Then there's the public relations aspect. How do you think movie fans would feel about Louis Mayer throwing out the former idol who did so much for him? Ha! Was Mayer's response. He did so much for me, that shicker. If I have an ulcer, he should get the pill. So, Fanny said, leave him alone, and maybe he'll drink himself to death. Or let him take a swing at somebody in public, and you'll have legal cause. This was exactly what Mayer needed to hear. His apparent strategy became to make sure Gilbert played out his contract without allowing the actor to do anything that might reverse his fortunes. In 1929, Howard Hawks contacted Gilbert about starring in The Dawn Patrol, a World War I talkie which Hawks was prepping at Warner Brothers. Hawks and Gilbert set a meeting with Mayer to discuss the possibility of loaning Gilbert out to the other studio. Loanouts of contract stars were common and beloved by the studio that was doing the loaning because they usually made a profit on the difference between what the borrowing studio was willing to pay and the star's contracted salary. But there was no chance of making a profit on Gilbert's insanely inflated contract salary, and Mayer apparently only took the meeting in order to get Gilbert's hopes up and crush them. Throughout the next few years, Gilbert continued to make contractually obligated films, all of them talkies because silence were dead, and reviewers frequently noted that his voice, quote, isn't bad at all. That phrase and wordings like it come up again and again, as if the idea that John Gilbert just couldn't talk good persisted in spite of all evidence to the contrary. In 1931, an L.A. Times story called Gilbert... Hollywood's unhappiest man, reporting that he skulked around the MGM lot with his hat pulled down over his eyes. With his wife Ina Clare's career on the ascendancy, their marriage fell apart. In divorce court in Reno, Clare said of Gilbert, he said he wanted to be left alone, paraphrasing the famous line associated with Greta Garbo at least as far back as 1929 although she didn't actually say it in those words in a film until Grand Hotel in 1932, at which point it had the air of an in-joke. For her part, Garbo was at the peak of her career, starring in MGM's biggest films of 1931 and 1932, Matahari and Grand Hotel. She and Gilbert had remained close, even as their romantic lives diverged. In 1933, Garbo insisted that Gilbert be cast opposite her in Queen Christina. Gilbert got himself together, temporarily quit drinking, and the two were able to recapture some of their old silent magic in the age of talkies. Gilbert's voice proves to be fine in the film, a bit affected, but he's well-directed by Ruben Mamoulian. And when he looks at Garbo, he smolders but it did not revive his career. On March 20th, 1934, Gilbert took out an ad in The Hollywood Reporter that said, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer will neither offer me work nor release me from my contract. Signed, Jack Gilbert. The following day, Gilbert was quoted by a reporter as complaining, I can't get a job. I mean exactly that. I can't get a job. With that... MGM finally let Gilbert's contract lapse. 
Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, both hated Louis B. Mayer and loved resurrecting the careers of fading stars, so he reached out to Gilbert and offered him a contract. Gilbert's first film at his new studio would be a cruise ship ensemble piece called The Captain Hates the Sea. If you keep your nose clean on this picture, Harry Cohn promised John Gilbert, I'll see that you get work. I'll go to bat for you with every producer in town. But that was a tall order for Gilbert at this point. His character was a drunk, which gave Jack little excuse not to drink. But he was also suffering from bleeding ulcers, and so a day of soggy acting meant that the next day he'd have to call in sick to deal with the aftermath, which, according to the film's director, Lewis Milestone, sometimes included fevers and hallucinations. Needless to say, Columbia canceled Gilbert's contract after that. It's too goddamn bad, Harry Cohn reportedly said. But if a man wants to go to hell, I can't stop him. Now Jack had plenty of money in the bank and a beautiful house on a hill and nothing to do all day but drink. That is, until he started an affair with Marlena Dietrich, who came into his life after hearing of Gilbert's plight at a party. Soon, the glamorous German import took up Gilbert as a reclamation project. She tried to get him cast opposite her in her 1935 film Desire, and Gilbert did complete a color screen test, but then he had a mild heart attack and couldn't do the job. According to actress Colleen Moore, by this point, Gilbert could have worked as a director— Everyone knew that he had essentially or actually directed some of Garbo's best performances. But his health seemed too delicate, and no studio in town was going to hire a director who might not have the strength to finish the picture. Two months later, Gilbert was dead. He had drunk himself to death, just like Mayer had hoped. Garbo, who was in Sweden at the time, did not attend the funeral. Garbo would continue making movies for MGM until 1941, and in fact, she would never make a film for another studio. With her box office results waning in the late 1930s, MGM finally decided it was time to shake up the Garbo persona by casting her in a comedy, Ninotchka, in 1939. The Ernst Lubitsch film was a hit, so MGM doubled down and cast Garbo in a madcap dual role in the George Cukor film Two-Faced Woman. But Two-Faced Woman couldn't find its tone. The Legion of Decency protested its supposed cavalier attitude toward marriage. Critics hated it. And audiences didn't show up. The film was released three weeks after Pearl Harbor, and Garbo decided to take a hiatus from Hollywood for the extent of the war. She never came back and lived out the next 50 years in enigmatic semi-seclusion. She never married... And though plenty have suggested this was because she preferred the company of several women to any one man, a close friend of Garbo's reported shortly after her death that Garbo had once drunkenly admitted that Gilbert was her great love. But when it came to marriage, she couldn't face the thought of giving herself up to another person. I froze, she is reported to have said. I was afraid he would tell me what to do and boss me. I always wanted to be the boss. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. 
Our research intern is Allison Gemmel. Our editor is Henry Malofsky. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe to it there or on the podcatcher of your choice. Today, we are happy to welcome back our special guest, Craig Mazin, as Louis B. Mayer. You can find Craig Mazin's podcast, Script Notes, on iTunes. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Tears, my lady of the various sorrows, some big, some borrowed, some stolen.